Black Sun Rising, Part 4. The Bolshevik Empire had ostensibly collapsed under the doddering puppet President Reagan's idiotic posing. Things were made available that should have been kept secret for a hundred years, and for a brief moment the veil was pulled back, allowing a glimpse of what moves the world around us. In 1974, I had seen a family I grew up with, slaughtered in their beds while they slept the sleep of the dead. My best friend, even though he was only 15 years old at the time, was suspected of being the perpetrator, until the drug-addled surviving son confessed. We were anathema in St. John's High School after that, leaving a trail of hushed whispers as we moved from class to class. Mercifully, the dark teenage melodrama came to an end when the school auditorium burned to the ground right before the much-anticipated Easter play. They blamed us, all the kids from the Amityville Copeg clique, and they asked us not to return the following year. 1975 was a big change in my life. It wouldn't be the last, but it was the first. No more expensive private Catholic schools. I was now attending a high school where the student newspaper featured an obituary column. The stairwell at the front entrance doubled as the memorial for a kid who failed flying lessons. You only got in after being scanned with a metal detector. I had made the A-list socially right off the bat when two weeks in I was cornered in a cafeteria hallway by about a dozen black kids. Some who would finish their high school education in Clinton Danamora and slapped around as they tried to force me to eat cookies they had picked up off the floor. I didn't eat the cookies. Instead, Joe DiMeglio and Joe O'Reilly, along with about a dozen other white guys, had come charging down the hallway, facilitating a bloody brawl that had to be broken, broken up by the police, canceling classes for the rest of the day. I was now one of the cool kids. I was only a sophomore, but I had already learned scholastically more than I would ever need to graduate Colpeck High School at 17 years old. I never went to class. I would spend the first four periods in the school library reading about World War II to lunchtime when I would play handball outside. I was a child of TV, 1960s style. Vietnam and communist incursions, you old devils that lived just to die. A master race whose God was a madman that would stop at nothing to enslave us all. The realities or at least what I was told they were, of my mother and father. All through elementary school, we would practice hiding under our desks for what we were told was the inevitable, inevitable attack of the Soviet Union. Hitler, Stalin, Roosevelt and Churchill, Emperor Hito and Bushido, I wanted to know. I read all six volumes of Churchill's The Second World War. I read, I read Menkoff twice and a couple of biographies on Stalin, but I never read nothing like I'm about to tell you. In the twilight of October 1944, Hans Zinser, a German flak rocket expert, was flying out of Ludwigslust, a town in northern Germany, when he witnessed what he described as the testing of an atomic bomb about 10 miles away. There was a brilliant flash that illuminated the atmosphere and emitted a pressure wave and cloud that had the a diameter of about one kilometer. After a brief period of darkness, the cloud became spotted with explosions of pale blue color. The sharp outline dissipated after about 10 seconds and the color lightened. By then, the diameter of the pressure wave was at least 9,000 meters and remained visible for another 15 seconds. The original color 
was blue, violet with red rims that quickly faded into a darker shade. The explosion was only lightly felt from the observation plane. About an hour later, he again took off out of Ludwinglust in a Hinkle 111 and flew directly over Ground Zero with the of the explosion at an altitude of about three to 4,000 meters. There was a cloud extending up to the altitude of about 7,000 meters shaped like a mushroom crowd with billowing turbulent sections. The electrical disturbances within the cloud made radio communication impossible. Zinsa noted that after flying around for a clearer view to, to, of the area detonated, that he did not understand why the experiment had taken place in such a crowded area. This account is from an affidavit in the military intelligence report dated August 19, 1945. The heading reads, Investigation, Research, Developments, and Practical Use of the German Atomic Bomb. Acronym APIU, 9th Air Force, 96-1945. APO-696, U.S. Army, 19th of August, 1945. This report is on film roll marked A1007, filmed in 1973 at Maxwell Force Base in Alabama. The film was not declassified until the end of the 20th century. Let me introduce you to some German scientists, the brightest minds of their time, men who knew Albert Einstein for the bad joke of empire that he was. Werner Heisenberg was awarded the Nobel Prize for Physics in 1932 when he was just 31 years old. Paul Hartek was co-discoverer of 1934 of tritium, the heaviest form of hydrogen. Kurt Debner, head of the German Atomic Research at the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute from 1939 to 1942. Eric Baggi, Heisenberg's student and the man who proved neutrinos do not exist. Then there was Otto Hahn, who in 1944 would be awarded the Nobel Prize for his discovery of the fusion fission of heavy nuclei. In 1938, Carl Friedrich von Weissensacker, in the late 30s, co-discoverer of the Beth Weissensacker cycle, which pioneered the way for nuclear astrophysics. Carl Wurtz, who joined the German atomic bomb research team in 1940. Horst Korsing, who worked with isotope separation under Wurtz and Heisenberg. There was Walter Gerlach, the noted, noted especially for his work with Otto Stern, who was awarded the Nobel Prize in 1943 on the deflections of atoms in non-homogeneous magnetic field. This is some of the lineup fielded by the National Socialists. Some of them committed National Socialists themselves. Heisenberg, with Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, is the most important scientist to this very day in quantum physics. Hahn had invented nuclear physics all the way back in 1934, but would wait until 1938 to announce it, buying time for Hitler to wrest from the greedy fingers of empire, the traditionally German Sudetenland, and Giacomov's rich uranium deposits. Gerlach was detailing in gravity waves, a science, dealing in gravity waves, a science still unavailable to the general public today. 
only a vindictive Zionist like Samuel Goldsmith, who inexplicably blamed Heisenberg for his parents' deaths in a concentration camp, and who was thoroughly steeped in the Morgan Freeman pseudoscience of decadent empire he served, would be backward enough to ever think the Allies had even one scientist outside of Enrico Fermi that was close to any of these men's caliber. The British and Americans knew this. They had their Zionist Doug Goldschmidt compile a list and subsequently founded the 10 men up between, and subsequently rounded the 10 men up between May 3rd and June 30th, 1945. They interred them in Farm Hall, a microphone fitted house just outside of Cambridge, England. They kept them there listening to everything they said from July 3rd, 1945 to January 3rd, 1946. But the whole thing was an exercise in futility. Words confided to Sir Charles Frank in November of 1945 that the German scientists knew the house was bugged, to which Frank relates in his introduction to Operation Epsilon, the Farm Hall transcripts. These transcripts were only made public in 1992. They pre present, cons present considerable problems for this absurd Zionist tale about German ineptitude in the very science they invented. According to the story, Heisenberg and company were convinced that in order to achieve critical mass, an atomic bomb would require about two tons of uranium-235, an amount at, that at that time would have taken approximately a century to produce. Because of this erroneous calculation, According to the narrative of the children's fairy tale, the bumbling Germans never bothered trying to produce a nuclear bomb, and the clever Zionists lived happily ever after. Few days after America nuked Hiroshima, Heisenberg and the rest of the Germans obviously could not resist hamming it up for the peanut gallery. Heisenberg called the German scientists to assembly in Farm Hall and gave a detailed lecture in the construction of a working atomic bomb that's critical mass of uranium-235 would be about the size of a pineapple. Hartek even chimed in with almost the exact critical mass for uranium-235 used in the Hiroshima bomb. Again, it was only Goldsmith and the rest of the insolent Zionist pseudoscientists that were too stupid to realize they were being mocked. The British and American intelligence agencies were, not fully, were fully aware of the situation. The empire was not amused, and those who resented Zionist occupation wanted in. The truth is, Italian-born Enrico, Enrico Fermi, who defected from the Axis in 1938 because he had a Jewish wife, built America's atomic bomb practically single-handedly. Zionist Robert Oppenheimer, in between spying on Fermi for the Soviet Union, recited poetry from the Bhagavad Gita for the fawning Zionist media. The empire's designated genius, Albert Einstein, never even worked on the Manhattan Project, yet he eagerly took his obligatory vows for the camera after the bomb was unveiled for the world at the expense of the incinerated women and children of Hiroshima, a city of no military value. After learning of his one-time colleague Otto Hahn's nuclear fission discovery from Niels Bohr in Bohr's 1939 trip to America, Fermi had gotten busy immediately, and by early 1941, already had 
what were the semblances of a working reactor on the seventh floor of Columbia's University's Pupin Laboratory in the middle of New York City, not, want to, not, to, not wanting to risk their own city in the event of a meltdown, the Zionists moved them to Chicago, where the intrepid Italian would complete his task beneath the west stands of Stag Field like he was building a vegetable garden. The first nuclear working nuclear reactor, dubbed Pile 1, went online at 325 Chicago time on December 2, 1942. From that moment on, it was inevitable that Zionism would go nuclear. And the, Enrico, and the Enrico Fermi show would preempt the Manhattan Project and be moved to Washington State, Tennessee, and sundry places all over America and New Mexico. The Zionist puppet, Lieutenant General Leslie Groves, the man who had been responsible for building a giant pentagram in the middle of Washington, D.C., in between explaining to the chief of staff, George Marshall, why he had appointed known Bolshevik Robert Oppenheimer, who had exactly zero engineering credentials, as director of the Manhattan Project, had accomplished nothing. He and his Bolshevik handler had been playing around primarily using mass spectrometry method developed by Ernest O. Lawrence, extracting grams a day of uranium-235 at a cost of $250,000 per gram. That's 1940s dollars. Gaseous diffusion and thermal diffusion were also tried without much success. Uranium-235 is an isotope that makes up only 0.7% of the naturally occurring uranium. It has similar properties to the most common isotope in uranium-238, making it difficult to separate. The Zionists would not know the exact calculations of how much they would need for the spring of 45, but apparently they were able to figure out that when two masses of uranium-235 are fired into each other at about 3,000 feet per second or more, they will produce a nuclear detonation. Once the Italian savior of Zionism had solved the riddle of the reactor, uranium-238 could be irradiated and transmuted to plutonium-239, a brand new element, highly unstable, that would yield three times the explosive power of uranium-235 and would require considerably smaller quantities. Critical mass in, plutonium, in a plutonium bomb would be about would be a ball about the size of an orange. <coughs> Far less than the 50 kilos of uranium-235 required for critical mass in a uranium bomb. The problem was the surface of the plutonium sphere would have to be explosively and uniformly com compressed. In order to do this, 32 redundant detonators, 64 in all, would need to fire simultaneously within one three thousandth of a second differential. If the sequence is off, the nuclear reaction will not take place. Even after expanding some two billion, expending some two billion of 1940 and hiring a whole cast of overpriced and under-talented Zionist actors to play the roles of supporting scientists for Enrico Fermi, America was coming up far short. In a memo dated December 28, 1944, Chief Metallurgist for Los Alamos, Eric Jett, writes, A study of the shipment of bomb-grade uranium for the past three months shows the following. At the present rate, we have 10 kilos by about February 7th, 
and 15 kilos by May 1st. In the best-case scenario, the American atomic bomb would have about half the uranium required to achieve critical mass by August 6, 1945, the day the bomb dropped on Hiroshima. From June of 1940 to the end of the year, Germany seized 3,500 tons of uranium compounds from Belgium. America had purchased 1,200 tons, which by stroke of luck had been stored in Staten Island, New York, before the war from the Belgian company Union Minier. The uranium ore on Staten Island was 65% U3008 and came from the Belgian Congo, where America procured another 1,000 tons that were 65% U308, and another 2,000 tons of waste pile, or, or that was 20% U308. Without even counting what Germany may have mined from Jakimov in Sudeten land, Germany had more pure uranium ore on hand than America used for the entire Manhattan Project. This Zionist psyop, now called now, the Zionist, in the Zionist Sayup book, Now It Can Be Told, General Groves boasts that on April 17, 1945, the Allies confiscated 1,100 tons of uranium ore from Straussford, Saxony, 31 tons in Toulouse, France, as well as 8 tons of refined oxide from Straussford mines. That leaves 2,360 tons of German uranium unaccounted for at the very least. In the summer of 39, a few months after Hahn's discovery of nuclear fission had been published, the Germans established a uranium project under Kurt Debner in Gottgau, near, Gottau, near Berlin. A secret conference on nuclear power was convened in Berlin on December 16, 1939, and soon after, most of Germany's top nuclear scientists were drafted into the army. Labs began to spout up all over Germany to study nuclear fission for military uses, with the first one in Dahlem, in Berlin, dubbed the Virus House to discourage unwelcome prying. By the summer of 41, Germany had refined 600 tons of uranium to its oxide form, where it could be ionized into gas and uranium isotopes could be separated magnetically or thermally. The oxide could be, also be reduced to metal for a reactor pile. Dr. Ryle, who had the overall responsibility for all the uranium in Germany during the course of the war, says the real figure is much higher. In addition, the National Socialists were extracting a ton a month from separate ore stocks left over from a previous private commercial venture to extract their radium for to, to extract radium for toothpaste. In order to make a bomb, the fissionable material must be reduced to a metal. With a plutonium bomb, uranium-238 is reduced to a metal. With, uranium with a uranium bomb, uranium-235 is reduced to a metal. The properties of uranium make this a difficult proposition. America was un unable to reduce uranium to metal in any substantial quantities until late 1942. By the end of 1940, the Germans were already pro had already processed 280.6 kilograms of uranium into metal. The Germans realized early on that plutonium would make more, uh, a more efficient bomb than uranium-235. However, Heisenberg's early efforts at building a reactor were thwarted when his colleague, Dr. Walter Bach, 
miscalculated the neutron absorption rate of graphite. Graphite, because it was one of the purest materials manufactured at the industrial scale and retains its properties at high temperatures, is used in reactors, as it was by Fermi to prevent meltdowns. Deuterium oxide, or heavy water, which is a, a water isotope with additional neutron added to the hydrogen atoms, can be used as an alternate, but the process of producing heavy water is time-consuming. Perhaps for these reasons, the Germans seem to have redoubled their efforts to separate uranium-235 isotopes from uranium-238. By 1942, Germany had already had at least five, and possibly as many as seven, isotope separation development programs underway. From among these projects, three very innovative technologies were being pioneered, beginning with Dr. Baji's isotope sluice machine, a machine using gaseous diffusion and similar machine constructed by Dr. Korsheng. Uh, by mid-44, by mid Baji's isotope sluice using gaseous diffusion would enrich uranium on a single pass to four times what it was being reported in America. Low enriched uranium, enriched to three to four percent, is used for fuel in light water reactors, the most common nuclear reactor. Weapons grade uranium must be enriched to at least 85 percent. Even today, there's only about a thousand tons of weapons grade uranium worldwide, and it is tightly controlled. Weapons grade uranium must be passed through the enrichment process multiple times in order to achieve its purity. It can also be passed through one enrichment process and be used as feedstock for another. The isotope sluice was not the most efficient method of enrichment used by the National Socialists. The centrifuge and second generation ultra centrifuge were more effective. A special alloy called Bondor, designed to handle the corrosive uranium compounds, was used in the ultracentrifuge. It had been developed by 1941. The American isotope separation was, as, at a much later date, still struggling to find a similar material that could be used with the corrosive uranium gases. But the Zionists, in all their books about National Socialist's nuclear arms program, always the same regurgitated dribble appear to have once again fallen into the trap of their own perpetual shallow search for meaning. The real star of Germany's atomic weapons program was Baron Manfred von Arden, aristocrat by birth, self-taught genius, inventor of television and the electron microscope. He held his first patent for electronic tools with multiple systems in a single tool for applications in wireless telegraphy by the time he was 15 years old. Although von Arden was a personal friend of Adolf Hitler, he was not even named on also, uh, on also thugged Samuel Goldsmith's list to be rounded up for Operation Epsilon. But nobody was putting von Arden in an English farmhouse anyway. He was Stalin's guest after the war in Europe ended. He would play the role of Enrico Fermi for the Soviet Union, single-handedly adjusting the balance of power by giving Stalin his bomb. The secrets of controlling nuclear fission to create energy and a tabletop electron microscope for the Russian scientists to play with. For this, he was awarded the Stalin Prize at a private institute in East Germany, fully equipped courtesy of the Soviet Union. 
But Arnie would be the holder of over 600 patents by the time of his death in 1997. When the war ended, he wanted nothing to do with the West. Maybe he just preferred Stalin, who used Bolsheviks, including his own wife, for target practice. Or maybe it was something Hitler told him during all those private meetings. Parentheses, chronicled by David Irving on page 235 of his book, The German Atomic Bomb, end parentheses. Between him, Hitler, and most likely Martin Bormann, held in von Arden's lab as the Russians closed in on Berlin. By 1941, four years after the Americans, von Arden and his associate, Fritz Houdemans, Fritz Houdemans, had calculated the critical mass of uranium-235 and begun construction of a subterranean state-of-the-art of laboratory at berlin Lichterfield, well out of reach of the Allies' bombs. The laboratory contained a 2 million volt electrostatic generator and a cyclotron. At the time, there was only one other cyclotron throughout the Reich, that of the Curies in German-occupied France. By April 1942, von Arden had a magnetic isotope separator similar to the cauldrons of Ernest Lawrence in his laboratory. Lawrence's cauldrons would not be used in the Manhattan Project for another year and a half. Von Arden had designed his separators in 1940, immediately after it was discovered that a fission explosion was possible. The ion plasma source to vaporize uranium that Von Arden had designed for his isotope separator was far superior to that provided by Lawrence's cauldrons. The process used by, Law by Lawrence's cauldrons to vaporize the uranium was one of its major flaws. The efficiency of Lawrence's vaporization process ran between 40 and 75 percent. Von Arden's invention, known as the Arden source, ran close to 100 percent and has come to be the preferred source around the world for emitting particle rays. Von Arden was not under control of the military. He was a card-carrying member of the inner sanctum of, national so of the National Socialists. As such, he was not answerable to the military. They were answerable to him. He was financed by Reich Postal Minister, Minister William Sorge, who besides being the bagman for the cutting edge of nuclear technology, was also extremely interested in, poss in the possibility of party propagation through wire signals and radio. Osagny was a close personal friend of Martin Bormann and Adolf Hitler, and just like them, he walked after the war. Osagny didn't even have to fake his own death. The Zionist charges against him were simply dropped, with no explanation given, and he faded into history to live to a ripe old age. Varani later saw his contribution to the acceleration of the atomic stalemate as the most important deed, quote, as the most important deed that fortune and post-war events had led me to. When the German cargo submarine U-234 aborted its mission to Japan and was escorted surreptitiously into Portsmouth Naval Shipyard in Maine on May 15, 1945, it was carrying the missing ingredients for the Zionist fiasco, appropriately named the Manhattan Project. U-234's chief radio operator, Wolfgang Hirschfeld, asserts in his book, The Story of, uh, of a U-Boat, 
that the uranium oxide handed over to America was highly radioactive. And they saw the two Japanese officers ostensibly escorting it to Japan. Parentheses. And when the Zionist fairy tale conveniently committed Harry Carey, end parentheses, labeling the cylinders U-235 before the sub left port in Germany. Although the photographs were permitted, the press was not allowed to speak with the captured U-boat crew, contrary to existing American policies at the time. U.S. Archives, NARA 2, Secret Dispatch, number 262151, shows naval intelligence radioing Portsmouth after debriefing Carl Pfaff, U-234's second watch officer. Quote, Pfaff prepared manifest list that knows kind documents and cargo in each tube. Pfaff states, uranium oxide loaded in gold cylinders, and as long as cylinders not open, can be handled like crude TNT. These containers should not be opened, as substance will become sensitive and dangerous. Because of its corrosive effects, its instability and susceptibility to contamination, uranium-235 could not only be could only be transported safely within an element of extreme purity and stability, gold. Using gold to transport anything outside of weapons-grade uranium-235, valued by then at $100,000 an ounce, would be like using $100 bills for toilet paper. The American unloading the manifest officially lists 560 kilos of uranium oxide. U-234's Cargo manifest lists 10 bales of, dr- bales of drums and 50 bales of barrels. The manifest says the barrels had benzene, benzene, cellulose, a liquid, a liquid which can be used as a moderator in a reactor. It lists drums as containing, comp, quote, confidential material, unquote. In the U.S. archives, southwest region, East Point, Georgia, Telephone transcript titled Telephone Conversation Between Major Smith, WLO, and Major Trainer, 14th of June, 1945. Major Smith tells Major Trainer that the confidential material is water, and all they know is it ranges from 10 to 85% pure, and that, it, and that he needs to test the drums so he knows which and what. With heavy water or deuteronium oxide, the quantity of hydrogen atoms containing an extra extra neutron determines its purity. It's safe to assume that Major Smith was not asking Major Trainer to test the appropriated water for fluoride content. Among the passengers aboard U-35 was Dr. Heinz Schlick, perhaps the foremost electro expert alive on electromagnetic science that the National Socialists were prepared to part with. In National Archives of NARA 2, memorandum written by Jack H. Alberti to Captain John L. Reinhaldaffa, May, on the 24th of May, 1945, declassified, Alberti writes, Dr. Schlipp knows about the infrared proximity fuses which are contained in some of these packages. Dr. Schlick knows how to handle them and is willing to do so. On May 25th, Dr. Schlick 
along with his three-man escort, was put on an airplane back to Portsmouth to retrieve the fuses. On July 19, 1945, Dr. Schlipp would give a lecture to the Navy Department. He was accompanied by his mysterious Mr. Alvarez, who acted as his handler, screening questions. In previous declassified communications, Mr. Alvarez had been referred to as Commodore Alvarez. The rank of Commodore only exists in the Coast Guard, and military records indicate there was no such person serving in the armed forces at that time. But there was a Dr. Louis Alvarez, who, cl who closely worked with Enrico Fermi and the military. He was placed at the disposal of Bolshevik circus clown Robert Oppenheimer in 1944 to figure out how to, de to detonate the plutonium him and General Groves had made. In the Zionist fairy tale, this Dr. Alvarez is credited with the last-minute solution to the the plutonium bomb fusing problem. Dr. Alvarez would go on to exercise his genius for the Zionist empire in such seemingly diverse fields as the extinction of the dinosaurs by meteor, analysis of photographs excerpted from the film Abraham Zapruder took of the Kennedy assassination and examination of the Egyptian pyramids using cosmic rays that determines the presence of underground chambers. Although Dr. Alvarez's true specialty appears to have been the use of pulsed microwaves. <coughs> Dr. Schlitt had served, as, served his apprenticeship at the Institute of Technology in Dresden under Dr. Herman, Heinrich Balkenson, inventor of the ultra-high-frequency vacuum tube electronic oscillator and discoverer of magnetic domains. His work would lead to the inventions of microwave transit time tubes, such as the Klystron. In 1935, Dr. Schlipp would write his thesis on the entrainment of oscillators and subharmonics. He would be repatriated back to Germany in 1946, but would return to America to work under Operation Paperclip. And off at the Office of Naval Research in Sands Point, New York. His work, his work there consisted of what is now known as stealth technology. As Jim Morrison, rock and roll icon and son of the most powerful admiral in the Navy, once said, I want to tell you about Texas radio in the Big Beat. Comes out of the Virginia swamps, cool and slow, with a backbeat, narrow and hard to master. Some call it heavenly in its brains, others mean and rueful of the Western dream. I love the friends I've gathered together on this thin raft. We have constructed pyramids in honor of our escaping. German historian Karl Radnikals, together with TV journalist Heiko Petermann, have presented the substantial evidence that the Germans detonated a nuclear bomb near the Thuringian town of Ordorf on March 3rd, 1945. It may not have been the only one. There was probably another de detonation in Waldorf and one in Rugen, Germany's largest island. There were others too. America's chief prosecutor, Robert Howatt Jackson, is on record as having questioned Albert Speer at Nuremberg about the instantaneously incinerating 20,000 Jews right outside Auschwitz. 
There was also a report declassified by National Security Agency in 1978 from the Japanese Embassy at Stockholm, Tokyo. Into 12, December 4th, Japanese received December 12, December 44. Transmission 14, December 4 to 44. Parentheses 3020-B. In parentheses. The message alerts Tokyo that the Germans have an atom-splitting bomb, which they have already deployed to limit the use on the Russian troop concentration at a location 150 kilometers southeast of Kursk. Although it was the entire night, although it was the entire 19th Infantry Regiment of the Russians which was thus attacked, only a few bombs, each round round up to about five kilograms suffice to utterly wipe them out to the last man, end quote. The message graphically describes Russian soldiers and horses charred black with ammo exploded in place from the, from the heat. The message goes on to speculate that the weapon was used in the Crimea. Whether the weapon used at curse was atomic or thermobarbaric, a mixture of brown coal dust and fuel remains unclear. In spite of Zionism's other desperation to maintain the fairy tale, which it does through an army of internet shills and scholastic hats, the dam has burst open, and the Khazar are finally taking a much-needed bath. There is no need. There is no longer any question about whether National Socialism had the atomic bomb long before America. The question is why they didn't use it. Perhaps only a soldier can answer that question. Hitler was many things. Proud human orator, philosopher, a man so charismatic that women, children, and animals swooned in his presence. But the madman of the Zionist fairy tale, he was not. Above all, the author mentioned things he was a soldier. He was a decorated war hero of unquestionable bravery. He knew death like a tail on Moses' claw. Otto Scazzini was one of the greatest soldiers who ever lived. Hitler's personal, personal friend and commando of choice when failure was not an option. After the war, he was a celebrity, admired by the men who were his adversaries. His book, Mein Commando unter Wien, he recounts a conversation with Hitler. Spontaneously, I spoke of the rumors about the artificial radioactivity and its possible use as a weapon. Hitler looked at me with shining, feverish eyes and said, quote, do you know, Mr. Scalzini, if the energy released by the nuclear fission and in the bargain radioactivity is used as weapons, that it would signify the end of our planet? The effect would be awful. Even if the radioactivity was controlled and the nuclear fission was used as, as, as a weapon, consequences would be awful. When Dr. Tott was with me, I read that such device with controlled radioactivity freed an energy which will leave devastation to be compared only to Arizona and Siberia with Bakal after the impact of meteorites. There's every form of life, not only human, but also the animal and plants would be completely extinguished for hundreds of years in a radius of 40 kilometers. This would be the apocalypse. And how should one preserve such a secret for oneself? Impossible. No. No land, no group of civilized people can consciously take over such a responsibility. End quote. The Germans had many great soldiers, but the Allies had some formidable ones too. 
One of the very best was General George Patton, perhaps the most competent English-speaking general since America's Civil War. He hated his Zionist masters with a passion that had no compunctions about telling them so every chance he got. General Patton was well aware on his way towards driving his victorious Third Army like a spear into the heart of Berlin, that taking the prize citadel well before the Brutus Zukov. Suddenly, he just veered off into Thuringia at breakneck speed, ignoring the Yalta Agreement and ignoring the normal provision to a flank for cover. No plausible explanation was ever given, except perhaps the Americans were ceding Berlin to the Russians. Not very likely, not a very likely explanation either, considering the Americans would fight a proxy war with the Russians over a barren peninsula in Asia five years later. General Patton was leaving the burned-out city of Berlin to Stalin. Arrangements had already been made for von Arden to go to the Soviet Union. The West would take the Skoda Works at Pilsen, the very heart of the darkness. A mystic himself, General Patton would have appreciated what he found there, far more than his Zionist masters, who were hopelessly ensnared in the world of the living. National Socialism was not a political movement, but rather a new religion, whose tenets were were an unimaginable technology, a technology that would make men into gods. Patton told the warriors of empire in public that they had fought on the wrong side, that they should turn the Germans right back around, resupply them and fight the human devil commissars and their barbaric hordes of Bolshevism side by side in a war of annihilation, a final battle for the collective soul of man. But they could not heed his call to arms, for their enemy was already amongst them. General Patton would not live out the year. He signed his own death warrant. Open commander the like and Lufthansa.